0: Song beats, my
1: G. First and foremost, I want to say your girl has stepped up. Okay, shout out to 1708 Gallery this weekend, November 12th through the 15th. It is a uh, Richmond soap ass festival called In Light, and no one but yours truly is one of the In Light. Uh, artists for this uh, week. So shout out to 1708 because uh, this weekend, which is November 12th through the 15th, uh, it is InLight. So check out 1708 Gallery online to learn more about what InLight is. But I wanna go right into this episode which features um, Dr. Amon Towns. Towns is a colleague of mine uh, and we are unpacking a crucial definition that comes from my uh, academic work and the word is called con artistry. So con artistry is about magic, it's an imaginative practice, it's it's about black joy, it's about uh, holding space for the art of deception and scamming and all the things that I talk about on this podcast um, and that I talk about in my teaching and my art making. So without further ado, I want to fade into a phone call between Towns and I uh, just kind of geeking out over some black ass theory and practice.
2: Yeah, Since this will be on the podcast, let's do like a little bit of introduction. So welcome, uh, Dr. Armand Towns, to the Black Matter platform.
0: Uh, Great. Thank
2: you for having me. Uh, I'm glad that you're virtually um, on the show. And I wanted to have you on Season 2 of Black Matter Podcast for sure because you've been um, a newfound mentor of mine and also have helped me um, solidify and make my scholarship more concise and also like holding me accountable to make sure that my scholarship, uh, particularly my, my work on creating a term called con artistry, uh, is not just legible in what we know as the classroom or what we know as like traditional academia because um, it's really important to me to make sure that this definition and this uh, project to my dissertation, uh, my artwork in particular uh, is yes using the resources of the academy and in conversation with other career academics, but it's also like rooting from the ways that I see everyday Black life and facets of everyday Black life as fine art and also a way to learn from our stories that I think fills knowledge gaps that you just can't get from like studying.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's been great. I mean, you're, this is your theory and I have really just, like, to see it develop, you know, I think you are, you're developing it as we go, and I think that's how theory should go, you know, it's not something that's finished, it's something that's constantly transforming, um, and that's the, that's typically a problem with theory, it's
2: assumed to be st- stuck and done, mm-hmm. but it's not, so yeah. Yeah, just to, um, give the folks listening a little bit of a, uh, background, can you just kind of give me, like, a sentence or two about, uh, Who you are and uh, the work that you're doing whether it be your scholarship in and outside of higher ed but also just like how you've been able to connect with me so easily on um in particular the term and the creation of the term town artistry
0: so i am uh as you said an assistant professor in rhetoric and communication studies but my research is really concerned with the relationship between black epistemologies and media and communication um, so one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we as black people use media and communication differently than white people, right? and how you know that in and of itself has like a a relationship to uh, what we think about and produce as knowledge. And I think that that alternative epistemologies is is really something central that I focus on in my own work. and one of the things that I've really found interesting with your con con artistry is that, you know, how can we think about this other than an alternative form of epistemology? Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of, you know, uh, thinking about the ways that we as Black people move through the world, um, and especially how oftentimes those modes are criminalized within the Western project of Uh, crime and epistemology Mm -hmm. and what you're saying is that there's something that's missing in that framework there's something that is outside of this like western epistemological project that allows for us as black people to express different forms of joy that by and large a lot of white people would never fully see or understand Mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of how I, I connect or I see myself connecting to what you're talking about in con artistry.
2: Yeah and in a second um, I will either I'll read it or ask you to read the definition of con artistry that we orchestrated but I like what you just said about uh, connecting it to black joy because um, for me con artistry uh, is very much about black joy and even reading texts like Fred Moe in the undercommons um, things that have helped me uh, put together this, this, this way of thinking of thinking and rethinking about my own story. I think for me, like black joy, isn't just about, um, uh, you know, being happy and frolicking in flower fields. It's also about like retribution, reparative justice, reclamation, um, and in many ways about revenge. And I'm not, uh, only limiting it to that, um, cause I wouldn't reduce it to just, you know, revenge and getting even, but it's about, you know, a, re- a type of recuperation of, all the joy that has already been lost by the ways that we have been, you know, treated and mistreated by institutions of power and have had to, um, you know, regulate our humanity in order to not only get into these spaces, but to get in and then survive um, within them. So I think that, like, Black joy uh, has to be in conversation with um, reparative justice uh, and the ways that, like, At 32 years old, I'm creating a term that is helping me to rethink and reimagine um, my experience as a child being incarcerated outside of being labeled by the state as like at risk and vulnerable and low income and all the, the, the assumptions and stereotypes that come with that and how like those labels can allow a younger version of Chaz to forget that in spite of the circumstance that I grew up in, there still was joy. There still was a story in there of like a mother and a son just having some really great times on shopping sprees and learning and and having you know all the experiences that every American quote-unquote traditional American child has um, those experiences are still important and they're still worthy of being archived remembered and learned from I, I like this conversation of thinking about joy as like I know people can't see me, but like a forward and a backward thing, because it is about reclaiming the joy that has been lost from the ways that we've had to um, reduce ourselves um, to only focusing on our survival and not our, our thriving and our joy and our happiness.
0: You know, the thing that I really like about, you know, your term of con artistry is that it, to me, connects to this long concern of Black studies. Mm-hmm. And that has always been about, you know, the ways that we live in a world that is not reducible to what white supremacy says we are. I mean, Zola Gersten was talking about this, you know, back in the day, she was like, you know, Black people may, like, have, like, white people come into their neighborhoods, and they'll tell them what they want to hear, and then when they leave, we going to do what we do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, anybody that's, like, grown up in any type of oppressive condition knows that when we're at home and you in the hood, Mm -hmm. it ain't all sad. (laughs) It's not all, you know, just death and destruction. No. Nope. Yeah, like, there's a lot of funny shit
2: that happens. <laughs> and I think Bell Hooks uh, talks about, um, look at us getting very academic with ours. <laughs> but I, I use Bell Hooks' um, Home Place essay as like a grounding force in my theory chapter in my dissertation where I talk about kind of artistry because she talks about, you know, the, the Black home as a metaphorical and a spiritual and a healing Place, which is exactly what you're saying, that like while we're being labeled as at risk and child will be incarcerated and lower income and marginalized and all those things by the white, you know, institution in the state, there is still these other things that go on um, in the world of black home places, of the beauty salon, of the barbershop, where there, there has always been a, a centering of self care and of joy and. Right. Uh, the, the the black women's kitchen table has always been a space to strategize. And I feel like for me, when I talk about con artistry as reclamation and and reparative justice, it's about like, you know, paying homage to the cultural production that comes from those spaces. Um, and I, and I think that like, again, it's like, yes, I'm using the term con artistry, but obviously it's in conversation with like fugitivity and, yeah. um, which I think is more of an academic term that scholars use, but like, can you explain how you feel like this is connecting with other scholars who maybe have talked about fugitivity? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, my read of fugitivity is that we are a part of, you know, I think a lot of people try to say that we're like somehow like distinct from the institution of mm-hmm. higher education mm-hmm. uh, and that you know we're they try to have some type of purity politics like we are somehow like above and better than the institution. Yeah and I think fugitivity is saying that it's not about some above or better. It's about the fact that these institutions that have been central to killing us. Um, They also have, because they have been central to that, they have developed a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. So how do we take those resources in ways that those institutions don't even understand? How do we redistribute, right? How do we rethink our role to the institution as one of taking, as one of rethinking, you know, ourselves, not as like the celebrants of the institutions and not as like people that are better and above the institution. But how do we think about this in terms of a politics of Black liberation? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So that's been, you know, that's been the way that I've thought about fugitivity. I'm sure people would probably disagree, but my approach to it has been, you know, thinking about the institution as having a ton of resources. And how do we take those resources and use them towards Black liberation?
2: Is just like not only how we take those resources that I think, you know, higher ed and art institutions have that we can use for our own joyful and pleasure seeking purposes, but also how we recognize that, like, we are already scholarly as we are, and how code switching and and reducing ourselves has been a form of, like, the way that they've stolen our joy. And also how these resources we shouldn't have any guilt about. Coming into the academy and utilizing them for these joy seeking purposes, because they are ours and they are owed to us um, to begin with. And so I think, like, that's why I love having this, like, I love kicking with you about artistry because. Reviewing the definition with you helps us to think about how, like, black folks uh, and black life and black folks who are labeled as disenfranchised. um, We've always had to create theory as a way to survive and have to kind of like live in. An alternative world, a better world than the current world as a way for us to actually succeed um, as quote unquote successful within these spaces that are designed and often intended to and continuing to um, kill us and take our take our joy away. And even if it's not that extreme, they're not concerned about our pleasure and our joy and and our wealth. Right. Right.
0: I mean, you know, I think like, um, again, not to get too academic, but I think about <laughs> Antonio Gramsci, Okay. And, you know, his theory of intellectuals. And he's essentially arguing that everybody is an intellectual, right? Mm. The, the question is, how do we get intellectuals that are concerned with revolutionary politics, right? The the structures of oppressive societies um, create intellectuals that either uphold those oppressive societies, um, whether that is through academia or through politics, or they can also be used to think about the limits of those societies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think you know what you're talking about with con artistry is an alternative form of intellectuality One that is viewed as, oh, this is not, you know, academic intellectualism, Um, but it could be, and it could, you know, go in and outside of the the academic kind of landscape. Yeah. So you've pointed out to me, like, a different politics of intellectualism.
2: And how, um, say his name again, so I can just make sure I cite it in the episode description. Antonio Gramsci? I'm not familiar with his work, but I'm due, I have heard the name. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll hit you up about a source. And so con artistry, as um, you're seguing in, into all the things that I want to talk about. So like con artistry for me in this conversation with Black life as fine art and how Black people have to create and literally create an alternative world in order to see ourselves um, as as joyful and to see our pleasure and to center the things that make us happy in this current world that doesn't do that. Um, Kind artistry is an alternative form of intellectuality, as you said. Um, So with that in mind, as as me saying, me being your colleague, but also starting out as a grad student, how do you um, get Black joy? Or like, how does it fuel your um, career as a scholar when a student like me um, or a colleague like me uh, comes to you and says like, I want you to mentor me in creating a definition about scamming, deception, and the ways that Black people who commit crime should be recognized as scholars and should be understood as entrepreneurs before we write them off for, um, quote unquote, being a criminal in a white supremacist society where we know that the real criminals rarely get held accountable for their foundational crimes to the ship that we're in right now. So, how do you, like, one, get joy from that? How does it fuel your scholarship? And how have you also, like, learned to maneuver within these white higher ed institutions where you can help a student like me um, and have this kind of intimate experience where we, you understand my identity and you understand what I'm trying to do with my work, but knowing that like, we have to morph it in a way that the Academy will still understand it. Right. Is that the new joy or do you feel like you've just gotten better and better at like helping students like do the real shit? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, my, My approach to academia um, has been very much kind of influenced by this discussion of fugitivity in the sense that one of the things that I do find joy in is trying to redistribute the resources of the university to people like you, right? Mm -hmm. To students, um, to colleagues, to to other people that are, Typically, not giving not given the opportunities um, that a lot of our white colleagues are, and so part of my interests has always been in that, right? Like uh-huh. I've had um, a lot of mentors who, if they weren't there to give me opportunities, I would have none, right? And I think that is something that you know I've tried to pass down. And by and large, those mentors are people of color, right? They're like, you know, hey, there's something happening over here. I'm bringing you in, um, and that's what white people have always done, right? The the only difference is we're doing it for a different purpose and a different reason. Um, so part of my engagement with the institution, um, with you know, scholars like you, has been very much concerned with how can I mm-hmm. take what the university has yep. and give it in a way that, you know, maybe they don't even know, or maybe they weren't intending. Um,
2: and where does that come from, from you? Cause I do feel like we can't talk about kind of artistry and reparative justice and reparations without recognizing like how we have had folks who have come before us that maybe cleared the path for us or allowed you know, someone like you to recognize that a part of you being a mentor to someone like me is, like, hearing me, finding ways to see me, and us using the scholarship and the resources of the academy to understand our identity better, even as we fight, you know, these white supremacist institutions. So, who has really, like, given you, I don't know if you would call it confidence, but, like, the confidence, like, yeah, I can help you create a definition about scamming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, like, if I, like, Go back into like initial definitions of like scamming and con artistry. Like, some of my biggest teachers were Bloods and Crips. <laughs> like, let's just be real, right? Like, be
2: real. You, you, I wasn't expecting that answer, but I do want to hear the story behind how you got um, access to that form of scholarship.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, like the entire kind of project of like, Street gang culture mm-hmm. is something that informed my thinking. It's informed the way that I approach and think about academia and the world. And part of that involves, you know, people <clears throat> who I know who are still in the street, people who I know who are no longer with us, people who are incarcerated, um, and it involves a alternative mode of thinking about life (laughs) i think most people at like an institution like the one we're at would think are not really knowledgeable at all. You we know, you know, would immediately write them off because of their their, their right. dominant label of gang members. Right. This is just, you know, criminality mm. in that kind of dominant epistemological frame. Whereas for me, it's more like this is a group of people who have had the capacity to transform their movements through society. And if they were white, they'd probably be in a mafia movie right now. <laughs> they'd probably be celebrated. Um, but because they're not, they they are not viewed as intellectuals. But those are some of the like most intellectually capable people I've ever encountered. Um, so I've always kind of moved through academia um, knowing that intellectual life is not reducible to, you know, what is written on a page. Um, what's written on a, the side of a building is another form of intellectual life. It's another form of intellectual currency. And I think all of that is important, you know, to understand
2: alternative forms of knowledge. When we say alternative forms of knowledge, it's not like we're talking about this theoretical utopian thing that we're fantasizing. It's like Crips and Bloods, um, incarcerated you know, parents, um, scammers, sex workers, like these are already worlds that are taking place, that are, that are happening. And I think higher ed is just, behind in the ways that, you know, we thrive as higher institutions about, we thrive on who we keep out versus who we let in. And so we continue to um, ignore and and undervalue the type of knowledge that is gained um, outside of the classroom. And I remember in one of our talks, you were saying, like, some of the most, you know, dope, innovative, real innovative knowledge, because, you know, they like to use these buzzwords, but the most interdisciplinary, innovative, you know, creative knowledge doesn't happen inside, you know, the university classroom. And I think as black scholars, as black academics, when we come into these spaces, we already know that, like, I already um, am recognizing, like, you know, my mom as a career con artist, like, when I was a kid, definitely, you know, was subverting a system, mm-hmm. was looking at being labeled single mother, being labeled black woman, being labeled immigrant, being um, you know responsible for raising a black son, like I was looking at all those things up against the right or our IDHT, the right way to live in America, and was like this shit is stacked against me, um, and I'm not gonna, I ain't gonna kill myself to to, to to quote unquote survive here. So I'm gonna choose to thrive by any means necessary, and I think that we would be um, foolish or quite naive to think that a young child is not uh, influenced by that, not just in negative ways, but in positive ways, because when you get to the academy, when you're a kid like me who does all the quote-unquote right things, right, like gets a college degree, goes on to grad school, et cetera, and you're realizing, like, these motherfuckers will treat me bad when I'm writing a bad check, okay, so let me write the good check and go into uh, Bloomingdale's or whatever. And they're still following me. They're still treating me as as Madison Moore um, would say. So like, what's the point, right? Right? Like, what's the point? So I think like we need to use our scholarship to provide more humanity and intellectual um, recognition to folks who have like said from day one, this shit is stacked against us and I'm not dying unhappy or this shit is stuck against us and i'm not dying never experiencing what it's like to wear a diamond yeah by any means necessary
0: yeah even in the the
2: quote-unquote radical scholarship right like the figures are that you, are, do you label your do you label your work as radical scholarship or are you like doing air quotes because you think it's like i'm
0: doing air quotes because <laughs> I, I i'm not saying it's not radical and I don't know if I would even label myself as a radical scholar, mm-hmm. uh, but I would definitely label myself as a scholar that is interested in radicalism. Got um, but, you know, thinking about, like, you know, the ways that, you know, people like your mother, people like Bloods and Crips are are categorized mm-hmm. in even radical scholarship, right? Say, like, Marx, right? Uh, like, Karl Marx argues that the criminal class is basically a leech on the proletariat, right? They're a leech on the working class. Um, And it's not going to be until, you know, Black Studies, until the Black Panther Party, until people like Frantz Fanon that say, no, what if this criminal class is actually the radical class, right? Instead of Marx's working class. What if this criminal class, right, that he is, talking shit about is actually incredibly radical because they're willing to already break the dominant rules of society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what if that was the way to reframe it? Mm -hmm. So even in the dominant leftist radical scholarship, there's an entire missing mode of analysis that Mm -hmm. I think your con artistry
2: points to, right? Yeah, dope, for sure. Right yeah, I, I like it because I um, I always tell you, I said this before, like, I feel like I code sometimes the way that you talk about scholarship uh, as throwing shade and maybe you code it as like just um, trying to avoid the ways in which, like, here we go, the ways in which, right, <laughs> trying to avoid the ways in which um, when we start to use these terms more openly, like, radical scholar, interdisciplinary scholar, it gets co-opted and then it becomes this like buzzword to explain literally, you know, the complete opposite. Like when we were talking about the, the concept of like innovative scholarship and like, we both agree that like black folks have always been, you know, innovative and like for me, even me, like I'm not, I didn't take no sound engineer class and I was like, I wanna make my dissertation more accessible to me because I know that like, I don't wanna just be writing all the time. So I'm gonna create a podcast. Right. And just learn as I go. Like, I think that comes directly from the way that I was raised. So, my mother being like, we can beg, borrow, and steal to get this thing. We don't need to go through the quote unquote proper channel. Like, I don't need right. to take a podcast class, et cetera. Right. Um, and I think that con artistry is also like, it's also in a way about magic. It's about, like you know, we always talk about creating something out of nothing, but I do think that it's about, you know, living a life where we, we, in our home spaces or in our world, we are seen um, in ways that uh, we're not seen in, you know, white supremacist society. So it's just making sure that we're living beyond the struggle, and that means kind of like uh, reimagining what the proper tools are. And as Jose Nino talks about, like disidentifying from um, uh, the ways in which like criminality is is um, it, it automatically means bad. But in a white supremacist society where, you know, criminality is goes hand in hand with racism and labeling certain people as criminal and certain people as entrepreneur, um, you do have to disidentify with those quote-unquote concepts of, of, of right and wrong.
0: Right, right. And in such a society, right, the the thing is, and you're kind of pointing to this, is criminality is bad, but so is like, Black academic, right? They've created a world where, you know, mm-hmm. it, it. they've created the idea of, like, Black people as not really connected to who we actually are, right? Mm-hmm. It is actually just an imagination of them. Um, this is, you know, the, you know, Cedric Robinson called it the invention of the Negro, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with, you know, our joy, our beauty, our laughter, all of those things. It has everything to do with what they imagine us as. So you can be a criminal and you can be a professor, but either way it is definitely connected to, you know, something that says that, especially for a white supremacist society, that there's something wrong with this population,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, you can you can still get followed on campus, right? You can still, you know, be asked, you know, why are you sleeping in your dorm room? Um, all of these things can still come back to you because of your body. And that has nothing to do with all the forms of joy that, that you talk about and you're interested in. It has everything to do with a white supremacist society and how it tries to reduce us.
2: Yeah, and it's, that's why I'm 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 thinking through as we talk about con artistry as like a form of magic because it has to as we work on on you know our black joy and self care and and con artistry as magic we have to think about how even the things that we dream of um, are still tethered to and conditioned by white supremacy often. Um, a pop culture example of that. I don't know if you're watching Lovecraft Country. Yeah. It's amazing. you like it? Um, Yeah, uh, at times. (laughs) But I'm thinking about um, the sister in it. I'm blanking on her Mm -hmm. name, but the sister of one of the main characters, you know, when she first gets the the juice to turn white, I don't know if you got this far, um, she didn't really think about who she was unrestricted. She didn't think about who she was uninhibited, who she was, you know, as an individual. She, her dreams of running that department store were conditioned by whiteness. It was conditioned right. by her being kept out of those spaces, and so therefore, coding the concept of being accepted or being welcomed into the gates of that white bullshit store that became like her her dream, her destiny. When, like in reality, we see, you know, without giving the full show away, that that was not. Um, what she wanted, she wanted, she wanted to be a con artist. She wanted to get even. She wanted revenge. She wanted to reclaim back her time, as Maxine Waters would say. She had a lot more. Um, she had, she had different dreams for herself that I think gets played out um, in that scene after the the white woman, witch is like, it's about magic is about doing whatever the fuck you want. It's about being who you are, unrestricted. And I think like. If we, as Black folks, I can just speak, you know, for myself, and I think um, I'm interested in your opinion on this too. Like, if we were given that potion, I think 10 years ago, Chaz Barracks, who grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut, would have thought, like, yeah, if I was given that potion, I would go and become a college president. And it's like, no, not no, that's not actually what I want. It's just that we've been um, scarred by the ways that we've been kept out of these spaces. That oftentimes our dreams of success are rooted in these kind of like capitalist white ways of achieving success and a lot of times black folks get there right and you see them fall because you see you know u- university administrators who may be black or a uh, black woman or uh, queer etc get into these positions work their ass off to get into these positions and then become miserable because yeah. it's rooted in you know unhappiness it's not like the oppressor is happy right
0: right yeah no I mean the the interesting thing about like that example right is that like
2: Ruby Ruby right?
0: yeah Ruby, Ruby. yeah
2: like, a, I'll i re i put Ruby's name in front so the character's name I love kind of that I want to talk about is in Ruby yeah and the power like, of editing you know when you're a sound engineer
0: <laughs> right you can do that
2: get it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah like the, the interesting thing about Ruby is that she is seeking recognition right that's and about, yeah that's what the whole thing is about so for her to get recognition she has to become a white woman <laughs> right Jesus. she can't get recognition as herself
2: and in especially a white because of the, the intersections of her identity her being um thicker bodied right. her being darker, darker skin and behind the you know her light-skinned sister like there's so many nuances and intersections to her identity that tie into how she is unseen right and,
0: and she becomes a completely different type of white woman from who she is as a black woman, right? So, like, all of that is, like, centrally located in this idea that if I want to be recognized as human, I have to be white, right? Say that again slower. Uh, if I want to be recognized as human. If I want to be recognized as human, then I have to be white, and that's the problem of, you know, not just Ruby, but this Western idea of what it means to be human in general is that it forces people um, into a particular box
2: that says this is what the human looks like. Um, in your dreams, your dreams get attached to that box. Right. You know I mean? Like, to keep it, you know, 100 on my experience right now, like, What I decided to get into higher education for and what I now want to do has completely morphed and transitioned and transformed because you're so conditioned as an at-risk youth, quote-unquote, that, like, you go to college and it'll save your life. You go to college and you'll come out and they will see you, right? And, like, I would say the only thing where I have felt more seen in my life, in terms of being seen by white people, it's like since I've gotten a puppy. Now they all are like, "How are you?" You know what I'm saying? Like, because obviously they see dogs more than they see us. And I just think that like I love what you're saying about this kind of box uh, metaphor because we often go into these spaces. Like Ruby, Ruby wanted to be seen. I don't think it, I don't right. think her character had much to do with that department store. Right. He was seeking to be seen and be valued as a human, and that extends beyond. Her, her blackness right i mean like the
0: now we're just telling the whole show no that's fine i mean whatever but like you know like one of the one of the first things she does right is she just goes and gets some ice cream <laughs> right like she's just trying to chill just trying to relax to be just be right so like the i know that feeling for sure the department store is just a metaphor right for the larger like. Larger politics of her just being seen.
2: Um, My department store in that show uh, is the university. Yeah, right. What is your, what's your, if you don't mind sharing, like, what is your department store?
0: I mean, my department store, do I have a department store? One of the things that I I like about thinking with fugitivity Mm -hmm. is what would it look like for us not to be seen? Mm. What would it look like for us to say, yeah, I know you see me as this thing, right? Like, I go to school or I go to whatever university. I know how you see me, right? I've I've been Black all my life. (laughs) Like, I know what you see. I know what you think. Mm -hmm. What would it look like For me to say okay you see that But what can I do Behind the scenes That you don't pay attention to That you don't think I'm Even smart enough to know or do Or to do it sounds like you're talking about Kind of artistry It's exactly what it sounds like Mm -hmm. So you know I think like You know I, I don't really Like have Any Ideas or thoughts That like you know that my university or that, you know, the discipline I'm in will, like, see me as -hmm. much as I have ideas and thoughts about, you know, what can I do in the spaces that are not seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not, like, a a neat answer. I don't have, like, a a great, like, oh, that's the thing that I can do as much as, like, I'm more interested in, like, you know,
2: trying to figure that out as I go yeah and I, I think um, this is why I see you as a mentor not just like in our academic space but just in general because I think given what I'm going through finishing this degree in 2020 and you know just the space that we're in right now when I said like my department store is university it's like I think my body is beginning now to transform from the desire to be seen or to be you know seen as worthy or scholarly, by these institutions, it's. It hit. I'm in a space where I'm realizing that my worth and my my value doesn't come from the space where I work at. It doesn't come from the space where I got my degree at. It right. comes from you know within, and it comes from the world that I've created, where my joy and my pleasure and my most you know intimate experiences of love and happiness are seen. Where I can go and get ice cream and be and. It's about using the university or the department store or whatever metaphor you want to use um, to go in and take what you need and leave. Yeah. And like you said, like I'm working similar to you to get to a place where you are in terms of like not needing to be seen by them, not needing to worry about, you know, if I. Uh, so it's like not even worrying about something like code switching. It's like, yeah, I can do this, but you have no idea what else I can do. And I'm very. um unbothered and unconcerned that you don't know because I'm over here doing my thing, you know? Right. right. But the part of reparations is like yeah. removing ourselves from uh, the spaces that will never see us.
0: Right. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the the things that I um, just personally kind of in, am interested in is that you know, alternative approach to 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 moving through the university, but also just through society, and then you know how we can rethink like what you've been talking about with reparations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for me, like people like um, Angela Davis point to this, right? And it's that like reparations is in part about payment, right? But it's also far more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And this is the the thing about, you know, fugitivity for me is that there ain't enough money (laughs) to repay what they've done. How do you quantify a project that is so Massive and so long, and so consistent. Even in you know the wake of uh, the "quote-unquote" official institution, let's say of slavery. It's impossible, right? So there's not going to be like a oh every you know black person gets a million dollars and we even right. It's going to be like no the, this shit ain't even, <laughs> Like this shit ain't done, right? So like, Angela Davis is like, well, you know, like, we need to think about reparations throughout the entire society. Um, part of that is, you know, the ending of policing, right? And the ending of incarceration, right? Like the end of the the, the prison is the central component of reparations. Um, and I think like, thinking about those like creative alternatives that are not like, you know, one thing is gonna do it, but Mm -hmm. systematically, right? Like structurally, how are we gonna think about
2: repayment is something that I've been really interested in. The sentiment that you're sharing now and our brain is taking this back to your referencing of like Crips and Bloods and gang culture, and also thinking about black folks who are in the system labeled as criminals. Um, because of the ways that I think that does involve a kind of imagining, imagination or imagining. It involves a kind of imagining of something alternative. And unlike academics tend to do, it involves taking that imaginary thought from theory into practice, and then living living in that world, like right. deciding like I'm going to be in a gang and I'm going to be in this underground space, or I'm going to commit this crime um, and there's no going back from this. Right. And I think that there's still there's still a lack of understanding of how that creates a type of can that can I don't speak for everyone but that can create a type of joy, um, and it can allow us to um, be seen in ways uh, where we're valued for not just our humanity but like our contributions to society at large. Right. Because not everybody can fit. Not everybody wants to. Not everybody can, and not everybody wants. Um, and not everybody can endure the violence that is working within many of these institutions that comes in the form of the code switching and the policing and the, the lies of diversity and inclusion publications and, um, you know, the, the ways in which the criminal justice system is embedded with white supremacy and the ways that, you know, universities have relationships with police um, uh, forces or whatever you call them and refuse to kind of. Uh, Acknowledge that um, in this moment, right? It's like, how long should we wait for the truth to be told? Where there are, there are other paths,
0: right? Johannes on the peace, my G. systems and um, their kind of complicity in uh, these projects of policing, of, you know, like incarceration um, is like another kind of component that that kind of connects all of this is like this history of radical activism that has been connected to college campuses. you know, thinking about, you know, people like Roderick Ferguson, um, who argues that like campus policing is a direct, is directly related to um, black student movements, to anti-Vietnam War movements in the 60s and 70s. Right? Uh, And at that point, then once you have, you know, radical student movements on campuses, um, which would be necessary to create things like black studies and you know women's and gender studies. Um, once you have those movements on campus, you now need a police force to stomp it out, right? You can't call the National Guard every time there's a protest. You now need a consistent group to come in and say, no, we, that's too much, <laughs> right? Like y'all are protesting too much. So now you have the birth of these police departments, right, of these security departments on campus as a way of trying to stop radical thought, as a way of trying to stop, you know, black radical movements that are not viewed as actual movements in the Western epistemological frame, but they are, right? Um, so there's a active work in suppressing that comes into the university. And then diversity, equity, and inclusion builds on that as well, right? It's,
2: uh, it's rooted in this kind of right. act of suppression um, and making sure that things are in some way have a proximity to um, assimilation.
0: Exactly. So then it's not about redistribution, right? The students, right? The Black Studies student movement was about redistribution. Of resources, right? Of resources, right? How do we uh, improve not just the lives of Black students on campus, but Black people everywhere, right? So, what they say with diversity, equity, and inclusion is we're all equal. We all have diverse positions Kumbaya, in all Yeah, Kumbaya. Right? And that then allows for people like white supremacists to say, oh, we're equal too. <laughs> we have, I have a diverse position. I have a, you know, alternative thought, right? It's just white supremacists. So I should be able to be on the same platform, right? Um, and that's the danger of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In and move away from a politics of redistribution of resources, and we then move into this idea,
2: well, everybody's equal and neutral in society. Um, but, and that's why it gets, I think, um, tell me if I'm making a proper connection, but that's why it gets dangerous to then label our work as radical, innovative, You know these, these buzzwords, because then that gets um, taken up as part of this other thing that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm radical. I'm this I'm that and I'm like you know I'm not going to use that word when you know there were people back in the day who like Frantz Fanon was a radical scholar (laughs) right like Frantz Fanon worked as a doctor and then quit and joined the Algerian revolution like when that's your your idea of (laughs) radicalism versus me writing nah I ain't I ain't radical. You
2: know, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get I'm just trying to get some, some black books sent to right. and some podcast equipment in a house.
0: Right. Yeah,
2: you know, black spaces in the university.
0: <laughs> I ain't gonna I ain't gonna compare myself to phenomenon. He got that shit. You know what, I what I'm saying? Like, so for me I'm just more interested in like pushing a, a conversation forward that is about this project of redistribution. To do that, I think it's important to read and to know the thought of radical activists. Um, But, you know, until, like, there is, like, a whole project of people that are ready to pick up a gun, which I don't think anybody really, really wants to do, right? Like, I'm not going to put myself in the category of a radical (laughs) academic. I'm just going to say, you know, I am really, really inspired by a lot of that thought, like I think that thought
2: like that, sorry go ahead
0: no that thought like inspires black studies right which is what i'm what i'm really interested in so
2: and i think by you holding space to kind of have these kind of uh, intellectual and critical uh, collaborations with someone like me for us to kind of unpack our work or our lived and um, professional experiences it doesn't just create like a an impact as you said within university colleague to colleague, student to student, but we're also able to recuperate um, and bring in folks who are outside of the academy, right. um, which is like, you know, now I'm on kind of my, my mission to make sure that um, people who resonate with part of my story as a child of the incarcerated as a, as a young, you know, kind of um, black, non-binary young man that, uh, whose family loved him but didn't know how to love him, like speaking to other queer kids in particular, like right. there, is, there is a space uh, for us to be deemed um, and be seen as, as scholarly, whether we come to the university or not. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's what you allow for, right, with your, with your term. You read the kind of artistry definition and I'm gonna put, put the beat behind it so that people have it. Since we've been talking about it on this episode, it's gonna be featured in... Um, so this term um, we're unpacking will be featured through media and through some art installation that's happening at, uh, this year's In Light uh, performance through 1708 Gallery. Um, so shout out to them for uh, letting a con artist in. Sure. <laughs> And so, yeah, Black Matter Podcast and the work um, that I've been doing through my scholarly stuff um, is going to be a part of the In Light installation this year. And I hope with your help, I uh, kind of scaled down the definition of con artistry so that I can start using the podcast as a platform to really talk about my scholarship in this way. Yeah. And, you know, eventually the first book or the next movie um, is going to be, you know, focusing more on Artistry through science fiction and through black choice critical practice and through black studies and performance studies. Um, But it's also important to make sure that, like, uh, the work is being seen and uh, and unpacked through different mediums. That's really important for me, which is why the podcast is a thing. My filmmaking is a thing. Um, And shortly I'm going to share that, you know, we worked with Johannes Barfield, who's another dope uh, local artist in Richmond um, and artist scholar professor at VCU to create a beat um, that uh, kind of symbolizes con artistry through through a soundscape kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Con artistry, a theory and performative practice that is rooted in survival and Black joy. First and foremost, con artistry is about recognition and recuperation of all that my mother taught me that the state tried to erase. It is about reclamation. Second, con artistry is an intentional centering of the fluid complicated and queer elements of everyday black life. Black life as fine art.
0: Con artistry is the art of scamming and deception performed and orchestrated by black people in my life and yours, who have engaged in fugitive thought to subvert a system designed to steal our black joy. Con artistry is an essential tool for moving our black bodies away from striving to survive And instead, demand to thrive
2: by any means necessary. And remember, an essential part of con artistry, as we taught you in the film Everyday Black Matter, is don't do anything for them unless they overpay you. What did you think about the beat? Did you hear a chance to to skim the beat? Yeah, I did. It's like waves and Raekwon. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the vibes that you're getting from it?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like. uh, there's like uh, a kind of like smooth, relaxing, and at the same time
2: jarringness mm-hmm. to it, which I like. Shout out to Johannes because um, Johannes uh, is a, a new friend and an artist that I just started working with for Everyday Black Matter Film. Kind of artistry, you know, roots from writing that I've done, but me just wanting to challenge myself. Uh, and bring in other Black artists to make the work interdisciplinary. So like being able to send someone my writing and they like listen to it, listen to my stories about my mom and I, and then, you know, process it through uh, their artistic, you know, medium, which is sound music making. I feel like is just like dope. And like the dream is to continue to do that, right? So like, what does of Artistry look like as a, as a visual painting? What does kind Artistry look like, you know, as a, as a solo short film on its own? Um, and I want to keep, Keep doing it in that way because I think that like it speaks to just like the the connection of Black people and the ways that like n- while Johannes' story and your story as Dr. Towns may be different from mine, you know, you were able to relate kind of artistry to your um your your uh, study of of gang culture and crips and Bloods. Right. Right. So for me, it's important to like use the term and let other folks like put it through their own bodies um, and then spit it back out through like a completely different medium. And now like hearing kind artistry motivates my writing in, in new ways. So I'm glad that I was able to collaborate with both uh, you, Dr. Towns and also uh, Johannes, because that beat is, you know, not something I could have ever made, yeah. and, uh, but it does help me, you know, create some, uh, it helps me hold space for just like, using my imagination in this this work that can become so serious and theoretical, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad I could
0: help in any way possible. I think it's it's always been there, you know? It's just about, you know, we're, when you talk to other people, you get new ideas, you expand on what you're thinking, and I think that's what you've been doing with Khan Artistry.
2: Mm-hmm. To close out, um, how can people that are listening to this, uh, especially folks that are going to be uh, attending my in-night performance um, and learning about our work through that um, weekend. How can people like get in touch with you? How can they support what you're doing? You could give your Cash App or drop your upcoming book. Like, how can the folks, you know, follow the work that is Dr. Town?
0: Um, I guess you could. Follow me and, <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, but your
2: book is about to drop, right? do you got a decent book uh,
0: I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. Uh, that's okay. It's it's coming. It's it's down the line. So I guess if you wanted to follow me on Twitter, it's at Black Ma- Black Materialist. Mm. At B L K Materialist.
2: Give us a little personal bio. So like where are you from? What did you grow up doing? You know, did you play violin? Like, give us a little bit of the softer bio. <laughs> uh,
0: I didn't grow up playing violin. Um, I grew up as a military brat, so I spent time um, kind of all over the country. Um, but I really consider uh, New Jersey and California home. Uh, and those are kind of my, my two rooted places. Uh, and, yeah, I... I miss both of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I, I uh, kind of travel back and forth between places when I well when there's not coronavirus when when I can. Um, but yeah, those are those are my my homes.
2: And besides for the art of, of you know critical intellectual writing, what are your other like creative hobbies? I cut my own hair,
0: <laughs> especially now. Yeah. Uh, I have cut hair though. Like I used to to cut my friend's hair when we didn't right. when we have no money. But um yeah, I right now I'm, i I don't know what I do in this pandemic. It's just <laughs> you can't go nowhere, you can't do nothing, you know, this ain't it's not it's not sustainable, but I typically I guess in this moment right now I play a lot of video games. Were you playing for folks that are into that? Playing my Nintendo Switch, nice. Super Mario, uh, Legend of Zelda, the classics, you know, updated. But yeah,
2: that's it. I was a fan of Need for Speed and Mario Kart. I just I like to drive as a kid. So I was always obsessed with car games. That's that's where it ends for me as far as video games.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can download those on Nintendo Switch if you want to get one.
2: Oh, so Need for cool. Speed is still a thing.
0: I don't know, but I'm sure it is like.
2: I would love to figure out if that if that's the thing. That was my game. Yeah, yeah. But then I got the real thing, and you know, car insurance and <laughs> right. registration fees really takes away the imaginative element yeah, of Yeah,
0: it does. Yeah, it <laughs>
2: does. So thank you for thank you for being a part of my uh, my my dreaming and my my imagination, my 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 magic making as as scholarship, as they would call it. But you know, I think. As black scholars, we, we use the resources of the academy to get to know ourselves better and find spaces where we can be. And so thanks for being like a library geek with me and figuring out um, how to parse this definition out. And it's gonna be amazing that like, you know, when this comes out in my first book or whatever, um, I'm, I feel very like humble that like it started here, you know, that we got to like have some black ass conversations about just like, yeah, this is what I wanna do Right. Um, and I'm not willing to negotiate on doing diversity and inclusion stuff. I want to talk about the intellectual contributions of scammers. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I I'm grateful for you for holding the space, especially in this crazy time. So I'm glad that yeah, you know. Thanks for. And to come on the podcast.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been it's been great.
2: So. Yeah. And I send you the edit. Sounds out.
0: Okay. Sounds good.